I think it's deeper than I've ever swam before. You know, I'm, um, I've swam in some deep waters before, but uh, frankly, one of the difficult things in coming to the pulpit on Sunday morning is what to leave out. You know, uh, for those of you who think I preach long, you ought to know what I cut out of these sermons. I'm telling you now. Well, if I get off on that, we'll be there all week. You know, we can't talk about that right now. We got to. But anyway, the point I make is the scriptures are deeper than I am, bigger than I am, and certainly more majestic and wise than I can ever sound their depths. So I say to you, when you get through the book of Romans with me leading and, and guiding the helm, I believe and you should understand something that we haven't been through Romans. We just sort of walked through it. We didn't, we didn't get to all the stuff that's there. there. There's so much more that would be a thrill to get into and dig deeper in. But I think that's where it's individual studies. This is sort of get you going and help you to understand the overview. And I hope you'll go deeper because there are many things that we cannot touch on for sake of time and cannot dig into. I think the way some things really would be encouraged to do. This morning, however, Romans 7, and I call your attention to verses 7 through 12. We'll read those together. Paul writes in Romans 7, verse 7, chapter 7, verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. So read chapter 7 of Romans, verses 7 through 12. Something uh, I ran across not all that long ago, but it was written, I think originally, it was written probably 50 years ago. But let me read it to you. It says that Park Rapids, Minnesota... A tramp walked into a restaurant and asked the proprietor for a free meal. The hobo looked so hungry and bedraggled that the sympathetic restaurant man said, Okay, what do you have? The tramp sat down at the table had a good meal, a first-class handout. As the hobo was leaving, he walked up to the proprietor and even bummed a cigarette. He fished in a pocket for a match, and along with the match, he carelessly pulled out a $20 bill. Say, what's that? shouted the proprietor. You come in here bumming a meal, and you got 20 bucks, and he grabbed the $20 bill. But this was supposed to be a free meal, the hobo protested. Not on your life, the restaurant man said. I'll just take 25 cents out of this thing. And just remember, buddy, said the tramp, I don't want you to do this. I'm not asking you to do this. Is that so, said the respondent, proprietor, the restaurant owner. And he handed the hobo $19.65 or 75 cents in change. The unhappy ending of the story is that when the proprietor took the money to the bank, he found the $20 bill was counterfeit. Counterfeit. Hey, that's happened more than once here in Franklin, Indiana. Happened at a gas station just uh, not too awfully far from here where they'd make a wrangle over something and then ask for change and went in and ended up with a gas and a change and 
hand, hand, handed over no money whatsoever. Something happened a few years ago to me. I was, uh, in fact, it came to fruition just a few days ago. Uh, my wife and I have had, or I have had in my possession, uh, I don't know how many years, uh, a nice uh, Bible cover. It was uh, made in Italy. Um, a family in our church in Ohio purchased it for me. And a very, very expensive thing called was highly more costly than I would have ever invested in it. And all it was was a, a leathered, um, laced, had lacing around it, leathered lacing of a uh, book cover, and it had a, it imprinted on the front of it some designs. And so it was a beautiful, it was a beautiful Bible color. And like I said, it was uh, sold uh, at a, such a high price that it was said to be genuine leather and it came out of Italy and it was hand-tooled and laced and all this. And I've had it all these years, and it was it was great. And I've carried my Bible that that thing was on often. In fact, it was my funeral Bible. That's a, I have a preaching Bible, which is this one, and then I have a funeral Bible that I use only in funerals. And this was the funeral Bible cover. So a few days ago, I pulled out my funeral Bible and I was making some notes in it. And when I went to put it back, I dropped it. <laughs> when I dropped it, it tore the cover of this Bible cover. Tore it. And when I went to pick a crazy thing up, I picked up the Bible, thought I had the whole leaf of the Bible because it fell down between the wall and the, and the desk. When I did, I picked up the cover, and the cover came off the Bible and tore in half. When I got to looking at it, the inside was soft cardboard. It was veneered on both sides with the thinnest layer of what I look. What I think is, uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was rubber. I think it was ingrained rubber. I made it look like grained, you know, leather. The fact of the matter is, it was nothing but cardboard. And all these years, people looked at thing and asked me what I'd take for it. Stupid me said nothing. <laughs> Not really. I mean, I wouldn't do it to the next guy. But the fact is, they'd ask me, "What would you take for that?" Man, if I'd only known now, well, then, what I know now, I would have taken a lot less than I thought. But the fact is, it was, it was a counterfeit. These people paid high money for something that was sold to be genuine leather, hand-tooled, and a lot of expertise put into it, which in reality wasn't any of that at all. It was a counterfeit Bible cover sold with the intent to deceive. When I read those two accounts, or read that account and tell my own, I'm reminded of what Paul wrote. He wrote this to Timothy, and wisely so to a young man in the state with Timothy was. In chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, in verse number 12, he wrote, Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 14, but Paul encourages Timothy, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. The word seducers in verse number 13 carries the ideal in the Greek of imposter or a fake. Someone who is not really real. Someone who is not uh, what they appear to be. And Paul was writing to him. He said they'll eventually get to a point where they'll be deceiving, but they'll eventually be deceived themselves. A deceiver who eventually will be deceived. When you come to the passage of Scripture in Romans chapter 7 that we embark on today, and the title of the message is Counterfeit Holiness, Counterfeit Sanctification. This particular section of Paul's writing is about the sanctification of the believer. And what Paul is going to address in part of the section we deal with today is there is a counterfeit holiness. There is a counterfeit sanctification. And what you have to watch out for, as Paul will tell us, 
is that you not get caught up in this thing, that you're not given a counterfeit, that you're given the real thing. So here, let me remind you that the present section here is sanctification of the believer. Paul has already established that the believer, the true believer, is one who has been justified by faith. Now, that's important because that's not justified by works. It's not justified by baptism. It's not justified by church membership. It's not justified by keeping the Ten Commandments. He is saying the people who we're dealing with in chapter 7 here are people who have been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. And what now he looks to is that they be sanctified by the same means. By the same means. You don't get saved by grace through faith and justified by faith and yet sanctified by doing it some other way. It's still by faith. It has to be operative on that basis. And what so many of Paul's Jewish friends and people to whom he writes in Romans thought you got saved by grace through faith, but then you had to work out the rest of it on your own. And Paul is saying, no, that's not true. It's all a work of faith, and he intends to prove that. I remind you of what we covered last week, just so you get the foundation. First off, he says, and we covered the fact that the law of God, in chapter 7 and verse number 7, established that the law reveals sin. And uh, the enemy of sanctification is the sin that's in your life. Before you'll be all that God wants you to be, obviously all the sin has to be eradicated, gotten out of your life. That's what he wants. That's what he's working for. In chapter 7, in verse 7, it reveals sin. It says, what shall we say then is the law sin? Paul responds, God forbid, nay, I had not even known sin but by the law. So Paul is saying, you you won't even know what sin is unless you understand the law. The law will help you do that. The second thing in chapter number 7, verse 8 and 9 is that it revives sin. And by the way, somebody would ask, how in the world can you say that that's that's a value of the law, that it revives sin? Why would that be good? Why wouldn't that be bad? Because there's something you need to understand. Look first at the verses. Verse 8 says, But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, or lust. For without the law, sin was dead. Verse 9, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. What he's talking about and what he will continue to talk about in this chapter is about his own heart and his own life. What he's showing here is that even though you may think yourself in your heart pure and clean and sinless, in point of fact, when confronted with God's law, you'll see yourself as something not there that's not right and you have to deal with it. It's simply setting out the fact that nobody is sinless and nobody is going to live this life sinless. There is no such thing as sinless perfection. You're not going to get there. You're not going to arrive at that. And how you will know that is the more preaching you hear, the more it'll touch on things in your life that you find that are there, that are not right, that you need to address. Now, that's if you're honest. Mm-hmm. That's if you're honest. And I'm not, I'm not, I was not born yesterday. I've been the pastor of the New Life Baptist Church for I don't know how long. Long enough to know this. There are some things that you'll never change on. Some of you sit before me. I don't care where I prove it from. I don't care what I teach it from. I don't care how I lay it out as evidence. You'll not believe it. You'll not accept it. Because it runs too counter to what you've always done. When I preach a sermon you agree with, you say, that's a good sermon. I agree with him. When I preach something that runs cross-grain to what you do and what you practice, you say, well, I just don't happen to believe his interpretation is right. It's so easy to do that. 
We have a hard time accepting, and Brian said it this morning, uh, the ideal of change. And especially if we've done it this way, we've seen it done this way, it's a convenient way to do it. And, and, and all of a sudden, somebody gets up and says, you need to change that. You can't do that. That's not right. We say, wait a minute. Where'd you get that? Well, you got right here. It says this. Oh, well, that's your interpretation. You'll forgive me, but that's the fleshly excuse for not doing what your heart would tell you you should do. But I know you're not going to do it. I mean, I don't come over here and expect every Sunday, every sermon I preach, every word I give, that you're going to bow down to it and say, yes, sir, pastor's right. I believe that. That's absolutely true. And I've got to go home and change this, 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 and this, and, and to comply with this. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm smarter than that. I wasn't born yesterday. But I also know something else. If I'm right in my interpretation and you're wrong in your attitude, you're never going to grow anymore. I also know that. So for that reason, I believe I'm right on some things, and I believe some of you are wrong on some things, and I believe you're stagnated. And I believe you're going to stay right there until you deal with those. Because in your heart of hearts, I believe you know better. I believe you know better. But to do what I've said the Bible teaches us to do in those matters to which you and I are addressing, uh, it's going to take some change, and you just don't want to do that. You've always done it this way. You've always, you know, it's always been this. It's never been that. And I'm not going to start. Okay, that's fine. As long as you understand that God holds you accountable for the light you have. And the progress you make on the light you have is what he's going to look at. And he's not going to give you any more. And you're not going to move any further until you deal with that which he's given. And so I say to you, take it easy when you come into the services and and you hear anything that runs cross-grain to what you said. For instance, if I came here and said, look, I'll take a verse of Scripture or a passage of Scripture and teach to you that going to movies or watching television is wrong. I don't care how conclusive I prove that. There would be people in this auditorium would still go to movies and still watch television. It wouldn't matter. Because you've always done it and you'll always do it. Because it's a change that you don't embrace. Well, that's his interpretation. That's his idea. That's his belief. I expect him to say that. I expect him to hold of that. But that's not for me. It's interesting how we dismiss ourselves and segregate ourselves from the big picture when it's more convenient or when it's going to take some obvious sacrifice on my part to be what he says, quote, I need to be. I wouldn't be much of a shepherd if I just told you, hey, go on, do whatever you want to do. Just watch whatever you want to on television. Go to all the movies you want to. Dress any way you like. Just enjoy yourself. Get all you can get here. I mean, just enjoy this thing. Grab everything you can that's fun. I don't care how it looks suspicious or in question. Just enjoy it. What do you think God gave it for? Why did God let it happen for each? He wanted you to enjoy it. Enjoy, enjoy. What kind of shepherd would be that to let sheep get into some messes that ultimately ultimately would cost them all their dignity, honor, and integrity simply to have a little fun for 60, 70, 80, 90 years compared to eternity. It's what I started the service in introduction to the choir. The true Christian, the real Christian is other world-centered. Our problem is that so many of us is this world-centered. We have really gotten intoxicated with this place. And we've gotten so intoxicated with it, we are addicted to it. And we think this is a playground. 
We think this is a place where you have fun. When you go to heaven, you have to sit and listen to sermons. I got news for you. There will probably be no sermons in heaven. When you leave this life, you've probably heard your last. But heaven is a holy place. And the more changing and conforming you do to the likeness of Christ here, quite obviously the less conforming you'll do in the transfer and the process of transferring from death unto eternal life. When Paul the Apostle is dealing with in this passage of Scripture is, and it's a personal matter for him because of so much of what he says here, it's in the personal pronoun I, and you'll see more of that as we go further in the chapter. Paul does not want his readers, and he doesn't want you, the listener, or me, the preacher, to have a counterfeit holiness or a counterfeit sanctification. He's well aware, and we should be, that uh, he wants you to understand that keeping rules and regulations and ordinances, etc., etc., is not going to make you any more holy unless the foundation is laid right in a relationship with Jesus Christ. If that's not laid there, then all the efforts you put forth are going to come to naught and be a waste of your energy and time. So Paul's going to deal with that in this section we're in. How does he deal with the issue? Let me point it out to you. Verse number 10, Paul points out that the law of God shows the effect of sin. And that's a wise way to start. He's a wise man. In verse number 10, we finished last time with verse number 9, talking about sin reviving. In verse number 10, he said, In the commandment which was ordained to life... I found to be unto death. That's an interesting thing. The command here, he's talking about one part of the law, which was intended to bring life or encourage life. Paul found out that it had the exact opposite effect. When it should have been, or what he anticipated it bringing life if he obeyed it, the fact of the matter is it didn't do that. What I think he was doing was reminding himself of an Old Testament passage of Scripture. It's found in Leviticus chapter 18 and verse 5. It says, Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. Many of the Jews quoted that passage of Scripture and indicated, If you just keep the law, you'll live a long life. you have a good life. You'll have a healthy life. And in the end of this life, you have eternal life. Of course, they believed it as a work salvation. So Paul was quoting this to these people, I believe, in the back of his mind, even though he doesn't quote the verse here. Even by the way, he does quote it in Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 12. He quotes a portion of this passage. What's important here and what the issue is that you need to make sure that you put the right scriptures with the right thing. In school, we talked about this in um, homiletics and also hermeneutics, the science of interpretation. And that is making sure whatever verse of scripture you're using that you apply it to the right people. For instance, in Galatians chapter 3, in verse number 21, Paul said, Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. What he's talking about here is the law never was intended to give spiritual life. It never was intended to give eternal life. It never was that point of the law. That was not what it was about. And yet there are people who try to do it. There's the group of people who try to keep the Ten Commandments thinking it'll give them eternal life. And it won't. There's the other people who even after they've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, somehow think if they keep all the Ten Commandments and other laws of God, that they will be even yet more spiritual. Or they can keep the spirituality that they've been given in Christ. That's not true. You're not paying installments on salvation. And your obedience to the law does not make that any different. You're saved or you're not. And you won't be any more saved if you keep all the laws than you would if you kept none. Salvation has no connection whatsoever to the law in giving it or keeping it.
That's what legalism is. Legalism is the idea that you've got to keep the law in order to get saved, or you've got to keep the law to stay saved. That's legalism. That's legalism. And that passage of Scripture is saying simply the law was never intended to give life. That was not its point. However, once a person knows Christ as Savior, once he's been saved by the grace of God, the Word of God does encourage life. It encourages the spiritual life that you're given by the Holy Spirit when you were born again. That's why you're supposed to read the Word. You're reading it and digesting it because it is encouraging to godly life. It encourages godly living. It's called right life living. Right life living does not come from obedience to a bunch of laws in the sense as a sinner. But once you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, right life living comes from obedience to God's Word. That's why it says, be a doer of the word and not a hearer only, deceiving your own selves. He's not talking about salvation. He's talking about the Christian life and living it successfully. And that's why I say it over and over again. There is no hope in the world. Listen, there is no hope in the world for Christians sitting in this room right here, right now, ever living the Christian life successfully apart from a continuous saturating of heart and mind with God's word. It will not happen. And you're wasting your time sitting here if you think it will. That is not going to happen. The Christian life is given by the birth of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. That gives life. God's life. That life is to be sustained in courage. And I don't mean sustained in the sense of made sure that it kept the right and operative and all. It is encouraged. It is moved in the right direction by your obedience to God's word. And I say to you that the Apostle Paul is saying here, don't use verses of Scripture, apply them to lost people, and then turn around and apply them to saved people. And that's exactly what the Jewish people were trying to do. These laws or these things about the law were applying to Christian people. If you keep the law, blessed is that man if you're saved. But if you're not saved, it will not be a blessing. What will it do? It will remind you that you're dead. It'll remind you that you can't make it on your own. It will remind you that you're hopeless and helpless. But if you're saved, it'll encourage you to do right. So making sure you apply the right scriptures to the right kind of people, the right category. Don't apply verses of scripture that apply to lost people to save people. And don't apply verses of scripture that are written to save people to lost people. If you do, you confuse the whole mess. And Paul the Apostle points part of that out in this particular passage of scripture. Note something else. Verse number 11 then says, The law of God shows the deception of sin. It not only, in this case, as I've said, shows the effect of sin, but notice in verse 11, it absolutely shows something else. It'll show the deception of sin. Verse 11 then says, For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. The law of God, God's word, shows the deception of sin. First understand the issue here in this text in verse number 11 is sin. Look at what it says about sin. Interesting. Sin taking occasion by our hearing of God's law. By the way, that phrase taking occasion, noted it fell back up there in verse 8, if you remember. Back up in verse number 8, it talked about taking occasion. Sin taking occasion. Remember the Greek word I told you then and I tell you now originally was that point from which an army or a military operation was launched. It was sort of the, the uh, base of operation. It was the beachhead from which they were going to carry out the assault. And what he's saying is here, the sin actually uses the commandment to do something against the believer. That's what he's saying. 
The law can actually, even in the believer's life, if he's not careful, if he does not watch himself, even in the believer's life, sin taking an occasion by the very commandment of God, the very word of God, can be a problem. And it's an illustration of that. The Adam and Eve had a Garden of Eden that was, I guess you'd say, an open access to all the good things that God had created. There was unnumbered privileges and possibilities and blessings in paradise. But when they heard of God's one prohibition, one prohibition, there was one thing God said, do not do. Now you can have all these other things. All these other things are yours and you can just enjoy them to no end. All the fruits and vegetables, the animals, everything, you can just enjoy all your... But there is one thing you cannot do. You see that tree over there? You cannot eat of that tree because the day that you eat thereof you shall die. That's an interesting thing because you know what they looked at? What the devil comes along and encourages her? Obviously, the one thing you can't do. That's exactly what this passage of Scripture is saying. By the prohibition that you're given, sin will almost always raise up in you a rebellion against it. That's why I don't always expect you to do what I tell you. The very moment that I say this is wrong, there'll be folks in this auditorium marking out saying, I'm going to check that out. See if that's wrong for me. It may be wrong for him, but it may not be wrong for me. What is it? That's the old nature rising up. It's the same thing that happened in Adam and Eve, and it has never stopped happening. It's the same thing that rises up in every believer because every believer in this room still has a, a symptom of the old nature, if in fact not the old nature totally. And the fact of the matter is it's there and once you make a prohibition against it, first thing that's going to happen is flesh is going to say, I'll see. We'll see if that's wrong. Note something else though in this passage. Something else very important in this verse of Scripture. It will uh, sin deceive Paul. Sin actually deceived him. I mean, taking occasion by the commandment, what did it do? Sin deceived him. Let me remind you of what sin can do in its deception. First, it will deceive a person into thinking wrongly about God himself. I took that from when I read this week about Adam and Eve. You know, the first thing the serpent said to Adam and Eve was to tell her, in, in essence, that, that, you know, why God won't let you eat of that tree? It's because God is not a good, pure character. Because what he's trying to do is keep all that for himself because the moment you eat of it, you'll be like he is, knowing good and evil. That tree turns people into God, in other words. And God's keeping that tree for himself because he doesn't want you to be like him because then you'd be equal and he would not be over you. So that's the tree you want to eat of. What he did was it deceived her about the person of God. That's not all it does. It'll deceive you about the person you are. The person you are. You see, there, everybody in this room looks at themselves in one way or another. And uh, maybe three categories would be the way to put it. One, there are people in this room, unfortunately, I hope not many, but there may be some, who in this room would look at themselves as probably being a little bit better than everybody else, you know. We're a little bit, you know, they're not in our league. They're, they're not on our program. They're not in our group. You know, they're just, they're just, you know, we're better than they are. The Bible says, obviously, that's absolutely wrong. Then there are folks in this room who say, hey, you know, I am just, I'm just nowhere near the rest of the people in this church. I'm a... I am the low cut on the pole. I am I'm the bottom of the barrel and the basket kind of person. I'm I'm just not worthy to be a part of this whole thing. There's that group. They think less of themselves. So you have people who think better of themselves than they should. You have people who think less of themselves than they should. Then there's other people who think themselves just about what they ought to, that we're all alike. We're all basically alike. We're sons of Adam. 
And that pretty well says enough. That says enough. Oh, there will be some of us who will let ourselves go further than others in things that we ought not. That's for sure. But I remind you, we're all sons of Adam. We were all born sinners. And we'll all die that way unless by the grace of God we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. So the thing for you to do is don't be deceived by sin in making you think better of yourself or less than you should of yourself, but rather think of yourselves in terms that you're a son or daughter of Adam. And the possibilities are there are unlimited. Then there's also the business of being deceived about the person who thinks wrongly of sin. Thinks wrongly of sin. And that's part of what Paul gets into here. And uh, in Paul's case, he was thinking wrongly about sin because he's heading down the road of a counterfeit holiness. And in that counterfeit holiness, what he was amounting to and what he was boiling down to was a business of him thinking higher of himself than the Holy Spirit would want him to. Calls attention to be looked at and understand that in fact and reality, he wasn't anywhere near what he thought he was. And that's what you're going to see in Paul's life as we finish out this chapter. Here's a man who faces the reality of what sin really was in his life. And if you ever thought of the Apostle Paul as a perfection, sinless, perfected person, you don't understand the Apostle Paul. When you come to chapter 7, you're going to see, and as we do next week, we'll understand Paul's struggle in sin. And part of that idea is that he looked at his life from a very basic standpoint, like many of us do, felt pretty good about himself until the commandments came in. Until he read or heard of God's word. And then when he did, it began to speak to his heart and sin deceived him in thinking everything was fine when in reality it wasn't. But I remind you, verse number 11 says, it was the sin that took occasion by the commandment that deceived him. That's a little bit rough to understand, but it simply means he, he was deceived in himself until the Holy Spirit used that commandment to revive his heart to this truth. It's not the sin of the law. The law is not bad, but it's the sin in my heart that the commandment activated or, or revived, as it said in verse number 8 and 9. There's a third thing this verse of Scripture says. It says, sin using the commandment killed him. That's what the word slew means in verse number 11. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and it went a step further, it actually intended to decease him, to kill him, to slew him, to slay him. Where there is no law applied, where there is no law taught, where there is no preaching of what God's Word says, there is a self-sufficiency, a self-righteousness that, that just sort of amalgamates or, or sort of evolves in people's lives. And that's why when you don't read God's Word day by day, you'll get a wrong opinion of yourself. You will look at yourself wrongly if you don't get yourself looking in the mirror of God's Word frequently. And that's why it's important day by day you look in God's Word. Otherwise, you don't know who you are. You will begin thinking you're pretty good. You will begin to think that, hey, I'll tell you what, if everybody was as good as I am and spiritual as I am, boy, we'd have a great church. And your problem is you haven't been looking in the mirror. Because Paul says when you look in the mirror of God's Word, His law... I'll tell you exactly what it'll do. It'll kill you. You mean kill you physically? No, that's not what he's talking about here because he lives a long time after he says, I died. What do you mean he died? How do you mean he killed him and all that? What's that mean? It simply means it kills all of his self-sufficiency, kills all of his self-righteousness, killed off all of his arrogance, killed off all of this self-confidence that he had about how good he was in himself. That's what it killed. You'll forgive me, but that ought to stay killed. It ought not be revived. It ought not be encouraged to live again. 
And this is what Paul is saying. By the way, the law does not commend people. It condemns people. I mean by that, there are several things that, that you'll read in the Scriptures to see this point. But what it does, it doesn't simply just state a fact. What it does is it also comes along and stipulates the punishment for it. So what it does, the law does not commend us or reward us for our obeying the commands. It simply sets up the punishment for us. Let me illustrate that in a little bit more practical way for us. Uh, how many of you have ever been stopped by a state patrolman, a, uh, a county sheriff's deputy or the sheriff himself, or a city police officer, and uh, they stopped you on the side of the road, turned on their lights, and you pulled over, and then they said, uh, come with me. And they locked your car down on the side of the road. You got in the police cruiser or sheriff's car, whatever, and they took you to their headquarters, and they took you inside and, and took a picture of you on a Mac drop, you know, and say, took a picture of you, and they said, by the way, we just brought you in here to reward you for obeying the law. How many of you folks ever been there and done that? Oh, that's strange. Nobody's ever been there done that. You mean they've never picked you up and taken you down and said, we, we appreciate your obeying the law. Have you ever done that to you? I dare not ask how many of you they gave tickets to, huh? Yeah, that's what the law does. The law does not stand by and say, hey, I just want to uh, commend you for the wonderful job you're doing. That's not what the law does. That's not the law's purpose, neither of the scriptures nor of our governmental law. That's not what it's about. You know what it does? The law's intent is to bring to your attention your failures. And when you come face to face with your failures, you know your weaknesses. It helps you then not to take too highly of yourself. Not to think of ourselves in ways we should not because we know how easy it is to take us from here all the way down to here. But that's only if you read the Word, hear the Word, and become a doer of the Word. If you don't do that, let me tell you what I can tell you right here. You'll begin to think of yourself way back up here. You'll, boy, you'll really think you are somebody. So let me tell you, the next person you run into who really thinks they're somebody, let me tell you what you need to advise them to do. Go home and saturate their hearts with the Word of God and His laws. You won't come away from that being arrogant. You won't come away from that being cocky and confident that you're really a self-made person and you really got everything and all your ducks in a row and you got this thing, you got the world by the tail on a downhill swing. You won't feel that way. You'll understand that inside your heart is this potential and possibility of rising up and you getting to think of yourselves in a way you shouldn't until the law of God gets its way back into your heart. And when it does, it brings you back down to reality. And Paul calls that dying. When the, when the commandment came back, I died to all that. I came to understand I was nobody, nothing. I was, I was absolutely, and Paul said, I understood that. Paul understood what the Bible really teaches about this issue of sin, and he realized that what Psalm 51 verse 4 says, Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be cleared when thou judgest. passage of Scripture in Psalm 51 was Paul, or David's confession after his sin. And David was saying, Against God and God only have I sinned in this matter. Priority one, against God. It's the same thing that happened in the prodigal son's case in chapter 15 of the book of Luke. In Luke chapter 15, verse 18, he says, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto my father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. 
when he gets to his father, it says, The son said unto his father, verse 21 of chapter 15, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. The point about the passage is this young man, prodigal son at that, knew this truth. When you sin, you sin against God. The good news is God doesn't want you to sin. And so what God has done is given his law to cause you to see what sin is. He reveals sin. He revives sin. He causes that which you don't think is sin to be understood as sin. And it, that which is lying dormant in your heart. And you don't think a thing about it being wrong. When God's law is laid before you, that becomes a little more agitated. It, becomes, it begins to move. And you begin to say, hey, maybe that's not so correct. Maybe that's not so right after all. That's what the law of God does. And that's what Paul the Apostle says in this context. One of the great purposes of the law is to see the seriousness of it. The seriousness of sin. Of sin. Note something else in verse number 12 and 13. Chapter 7, verse 12. Paul writes, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. But look at verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Let me tell you what else the law does. And this verse says, the law of God shows the sinfulness of sin. The sinfulness of sin. I believe with all of my heart that every lost person knows that there is a thing called sin. I believe that. Every lost person knows there's a thing called sin. What they do not know is the sinfulness of sin. By the way, in fact, most believers don't comprehend, I personally believe, how bad or how sinful sin is. I don't think Christians understand that. The law helps to understand and realize how sinful sin is. That's what verse 13 is saying. If you don't think sin is sinful... I know your problem again. What is it? You aren't reading the Word. You aren't reading the Word. If you can sit down in front of a television and you can see some of the ungodly stuff that trapes across in front of you and you know in your heart, you know, you, you, you have a little funny feeling about the thing and you do not do something about it, my friend, your problem is you may be reading the Word, but you're not digesting it. Because what this verse of Scripture says, when you read the law of God, when you read God's Word... What it causes you to see is the sinfulness of sin. And what we've lost in our society is a realization, an understanding, and a comprehension of the sinfulness of sin. Now, you'll forgive me, but some of you need to go home today and clean out your video cabinet of some of those R-rated stuff. Some of you need to take away your DVD stuff that's R-rated and ungodly stuff. You need to clear your house of that. And you ought not put it anywhere on your premises and property again. You ought to clean it out. And then what you ought to do is make a covenant with the Lord that every day of your life, for as long as you live, you will not eat a bite of food until you have first read His Word, which Job said was more important than His necessary food in the first place. You want to lose weight? Don't eat until you read. Don't eat until you read. And you'll really lose weight if you don't quit reading until your heart is spoken to. You won't have to worry about any weight program. You lose it in a hurry. Just keep reading until you get in your heart what's being said and, and you embrace it and take it to heart and live by it. No, our problem is this. 
We have a concept of sin. We know pretty much what it is. But how sinful it is, we'd know better if we stayed and spent more time under the influences and the auspices of God's Word. Chapter 7, verse number 13, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. And it's an interesting thing to me. He's talking, he wants you to see how black this sin is. God wants you to understand how black sin is. It, it interests me that how he does it is he lays down beside of it something white. Here's the black and here's the white. See verse 12? Wherefore the law is what? Tell me. Holy. Say it a little louder. Holy. The law is holy and the commandment is what? Holy and what? And what? Good. It's interesting, isn't it, that he lays them side by side. He said, for me to help you understand how sinful sin is, what I have to do is lay before you that which is absolutely good and just, in essence, perfect. And if you'll take this in, you'll have a measuring rod by what you can determine what is good and bad. But if you don't take in that which is holy, just, and good, you'll never know what bad is. You won't understand how bad bad is unless you take in that which is good, just, and, and, and holy. You'll never do it. Because I know what you'll judge by. Everybody else is doing it. I've seen these other Christians doing that. That's not what it says. Verse number 12 says absolutely nothing about other Christians. It has everything to say about what God gave under His authority and majesty and love for us. He gave His holy word. He said, this is your measuring stick. Don't you dare stick somebody else beside of you. What John said about it is so true. These people measuring themselves by themselves, looked at themselves and saying, hey, we're pretty good people. Paul says, don't you dare put somebody else beside of you and let that person become the measuring stick beside of you to decide how spiritual you are. That's not what I'm interested in. He said, do you want to know how spiritual you are? Lay down God's holy, just, good word. And you judge by that. That's an interesting thing to me because uh, this answers, as, as far as I can tell, the question here that was answered or the question that was put forth back in verse number 7, is the law sin? Well, this is an excellent answer. No, the law is not sin. Well, how does this have this effect on us? I'll tell you why. Because what Paul is explaining here, and I think doing a, an absolute perfect job of it, is that you can see how sinful sin is when it was use something good like the law that's holy and good and just in the law in the life of a person to produce a tragic result you see that you can see how sinful sin is when it actually uses a commandment to start a process of tragedy to kill the guy I mean and I say in this case dying is a good thing dying to self-sufficiency and self-righteousness and all that but my point about it is sin has the ideal here and carries with it the ideal that you can see how bad sin is with sin's motive to use something good for an evil cause deceived Paul sin deceived him but he used a commandment to start it off with he used something good that is Satan and sin would use something good to end up deceiving a Christian. That's how bad sin is. You see, if you thought sin was your friend, you, uh, you don't understand sin at all. Sin will use whatever it can to wreck you and ruin you and eventually kill you. It is, as it were, Satan's secret weapon, which is obviously no secret at all. 
ever keep before you. There's nothing wrong with the law of God. It's rather the raw material that the law works with that is wrong, and that's us. The law is given to us, and we are the raw material, and it's something inside of us that's wrong. What the law does, it exposes the lawbreaker, and in so doing, it provides protection for the law abiding. That's why you better thank God for every police officer who pulls off the road and takes out of a car every man or woman or teenager who is drunk. You better thank God for those folks. Or as otherwise, you may be taking a half a day of your life down at one of the local funeral homes picking out caskets and planning funeral services. Because you see, because they're lawbreakers, they jeopardize our lives who are law-abiding. And in the scriptural sense of that word, that idea carries with it the ideal of people getting to see how they broke the law. We need to bring the law to bear upon people's lives. That's why you need to read God's word every single day. Bring the law of God, the scriptures, to bear on your life every day so that you can see what you're doing that's wrong and make adjustments before he pulls you over and arrests you spiritually. There are some people, and we read about it often in the passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians when we have communion as we did a Sunday or so ago. It says in that passage of Scripture that some of you are sickly and some of you sleep. You see, when people won't take heed to the law of God, obey God's Word, and then conform to the image of God that's revealed in His law, you leave Him very little choice. The same way you leave a police officer very little choice. If you keep disobeying the law and he, he gives you a warning and you come back and you do it again, then eventually something's going to have to give and usually you go before a judge and hopefully, hopefully a judge would put you in prison for a while to protect the rest of us. God's program is a little more permanent. He'll fix it so you won't do that again ever. And that's why some of them slept in the Corinthian church. He first brought to bear the Holy Scriptures, the law of God, and said, abide by them. But if you don't abide by them, I have a way to fix the problem. And some of us sit here and don't think God's that serious. We say, hey, we have a loving God. You sure do. I have the same one. He is loving, but he is not afraid to take your life in a heartbeat if you cross the line from what he says you should and should not do. And do it frequently enough that his patience and his mercy runs dry for you. You say, if you got the idea that God wouldn't crown you and take you home, you don't understand what the Bible teaches about God. Sin is serious. And this passage of Scripture, Paul is saying that the law of God was given so you could see the effect of sin, that is, that it kills people, it does not give them life. You could also see the sinfulness of sin, realizing how very bad it is because the first thing that should give you a signal, anything that uses something good to create something bad is not good at all. And that's what sin does. When the command of God was given, sin deceived. It used that command. It sprung loose from that command to do something very bad, deceive Paul. And I say to you that sin does it all the time to people. Sin is a counterfeit killer makes all the promises in the world and then comes through with none. This morning as we close this service, let me ask you, is your salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone? 
Is that the salvation you have? Or is your salvation by grace through faith in Christ, but keeping of all the rules and regulations and ordinances and in the commands of Scripture? And if I keep all these, I get to go to heaven. Is that the kind of salvation you're hanging on to? Let me tell you this morning, Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6 and 7 knows nothing of that kind of salvation. The salvation he knows about, teaches, preaches, and has recorded under the inspiration of God is a salvation that is ours by simple childlike faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. Is that how you were saved? By the mercy of God, through the grace of God, in Christ alone. I hope it is. And what about your sanctification? Is your sanctification the work of your own energy and your own flesh? Or is yours a relationship with Jesus Christ first, which prompts you and magnetically draws you to do that which is right? And so the law to you is not your enemy and it's not something you hate. It's something you love and you want to know better how to conform to the likeness of Christ. And so in your heart of hearts, there's a longing to read it. There's a longing to memorize it. Because when we memorize it, if I hide God's word in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What is the attitude you take toward the scriptures? You answer me that question and I'll answer you where you are sanctification wise. Whether you're trying to do it on your own or whether yours is a relationship that you love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of your heart, your mind, and your soul. And you love him enough to spend time every day with him in the word. I can get up here and preach until I'm blue in the face. And some of you will never pick up the scriptures on a daily basis. I know that too. But I want to tell you now, you're going to be the loser. Excuse me. You already are the loser. The scriptures are so precious to those who know the Lord. They give life. They really do. They give a sense of understanding about what life really is, what really counts, what really matters, not what this world is constantly pumping your head with and media is constantly ingesting to you to tell you what life really is. You remember this. This world has no clue. Pagans of this world have no clue what right life is really all about. They don't understand that it is appointed unto man once to die and after this, the judgment. They don't understand that. And they don't want to understand that. They never put themselves in a position where they have to understand that. That's why they don't come to church. They don't want to hear somebody tell them that they're going to die. They don't want to have to think about death. They don't want to have to think about after death they meet God. They don't want to think about any of that because they're enemies of God. They do not love God's Word. They have no interest in that. All they want to do is live, let live, and have a big party between now and the time they close the casket lid. I tell you, my friend, life is more than all of that. And when you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you really begin to live. Are you dead today? Dead in trespasses and sins? I remind you, I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. And I know and He knows your heart in the sense that if you don't know Christ, I know that there's something missing. And I know that nothing else will fill it. There's a vacuum in every heart that's made to exact the same shape and size of that which God fills. And nothing else will fill it to the satisfaction of yours. 
Do you know him? If not, I hope you'll come to know him. Allow someone here to show you from the scriptures how you can know Christ. If you know him, then live like it. Read his word every day out of a relationship to him to get to know him better. Know what he expects and know what he wants and know what he is, is he should be, what he wanted your life to be. When you do, then you'll know the abundant life that he wants all of us to have. Our Father, how kind and gracious and loving and patient you are to all of us, me included. Thank you so very much for your grace and your mercy to us. Not only in saving us, but as it were, putting up with us when we're unlovely and out of character for us as Christians, not doing as we ought to as believers. Thank you for your patience. And this morning I pray for any who are here in this auditorium who are not saved. They've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, but they've worked so very hard at being religious. They've prayed prayers. They've gone to church. They've tried hard to turn over new leaves. They've tried to put away sin in their lives on their own. They've done a thousand things to try to win your favor. And even yet, they may be trying this morning. I pray, help them to come to the end of themselves. Help them to come to the point where they realize that nothing they can do in the flesh is going to ever please a holy God of heaven. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It is only that which the Holy Spirit produces in us in obedience to the divine commands of Scripture. That's what you look at as being that which is rewardable material. So this morning, I pray, help them to understand that all you want them to do is to come just as they are, hopeless and lost. And allow someone to take the Scriptures and open them to the passages of Scripture that will point them to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only hope they have of getting to heaven. I pray bring forth conviction to their hearts even now. And I pray for believers here this morning. Father, speak to our hearts and help us to be absolutely sure that we're in your word every day so that the mirror of your word will show us who we really are. Help these, I pray, young people in this auditorium that they'll learn the, the absolute essential need of submission to authority. Young people living at home, that they bow to the orders of their parents, the directives of their parents, even when they don't understand, even when they don't agree. Father, help them to understand that those parents are your authorities in those homes. And if they're not bowing to that authority of those parents, they're not bowing to you. And you'll not bless them. And you'll not use them. And their lives will not be what they ought to be because this becomes sin to them. And I pray, therefore, this morning, Father, that you'll work in every heart of every young people, young person in this auditorium, that they'll learn the importance of bowing to the authorities that you have placed in their lives that represent you. I pray for every adult, man and woman in this room. I pray, Father, for those who are professing believers in this category. I pray that we might look at ourselves and be honest and open. And, Father, that you'd work in our lives and change us from glory to glory. Take us from where we are to where we ought to be. And when we read your word, help us to understand it, comprehend it, and then set out to obey it. Help us not to rebel against it. Help us not to, as it were, to put it on the back burner. But help us to make up our minds to do that which we ought to do, being a doer of the word. I pray, bring forth the fruit that you've ordained for this hour. Get all the glory from it for yourself. And may when people leave here today... They know that they have met with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? 282, if you need a hymn book, we sing the first verse of the song, Just As I Am. And if God has spoken to your heart, we invite you to come. If you do not know Christ as Savior, obviously that's the most urgent and essential, and it's the biggest issue we have to face. 
is making sure of our relationship to Jesus Christ. If you don't know him, please come. Allow someone to show you from the scriptures how you can be saved. If you know Christ and he has spoken to your heart through his spirit about matters in your own life concerning your relationship to the word of God, this is time to, as the Israelites did, to stack up the stones and say from here on it's going to be different. And every time we pass this place and see this pile of stones, we're going to be reminded what God did in our hearts right here, right now. So today this is a good time for you to stack a pile of stones and say, I'll remember this. I will not forget it. So if God's spoken to your heart as a believer, you respond accordingly. If he's spoken to your heart as an unbeliever, someone who has never believed on Christ as Savior, we want to help. We'd be glad to help you. Just let us know how. As we sing, 282 verse 1, you just simply obey the Lord. Together and sing, just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? And we'll sing no more. If you'll bow your heads, the instruments stop. Every head bowed, every eye closed. We close with just this, and I'll leave it with you. The monkey's off my back. I preach what I believe the Lord wants me to. I'll leave you with this question. Did God speak to you today? Did God speak to you today? Oh, I don't mean, did you hear an audible voice? I mean, did God's Word speak to you today? Heads bowed and eyes are closed. You say, yes, Pastor, God spoke to my heart. And I'd appreciate you praying for me that I'll do that which I ought to do. Would you just put them up? God spoke to me today. Keep them up for just a moment. You pray for me that I'll do what I should do. God bless you. You may put them down. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful for your speaking. And we're grateful. And we mean grateful for your word, your law that causes us to see sin for what it is. And causes us to see sin for its real effects. And then also causes us to understand how sinful sin is. And I pray today that you'd help us to understand and embrace this truth and may it forever change our lives. And I pray for all these friends who've lifted their hands. I'm thankful to you for speaking to them. How kind and gracious you are to continually to speak to us and work in our hearts when sometimes we don't listen. I've been there. I've done that. And I thank you for continuing to speak even while I seem to be adamantly against that which you were saying. And I do thank you today for the grace and mercy that you extended to all of us in giving us your word. A word that serves as a mirror for us to look into and see ourselves for what we really are. And then to make the adjustments according to the dictates of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. So I pray today that you'll help these become a reality and may we stack up some stones at this place. And every time we pass this part, I pray that the stones will remind us of your speaking to us about this particular matter. And I pray that we'll never be the same, that we'll always be changing from glory to glory. And I pray that you'll use us then mightily for your own namesake. Thank you for every visitor and guest that's come this way today. I pray your richest blessing upon them. And thank you for the faithfulness of the New Life Baptist Church family. Thank you for their faithfulness in coming. 
Thank you for their faithfulness and giving. Thank you for all the things they do to make the work of the ministry operable, functional, and fruitful. I pray your richest blessing upon our church family. And I pray that you might enlarge our tribe, that you might increase our number, strengthen our shoulders and our hands in this community, that we might have a greater, more holy impact on this city. And Father, realizing that someday, one day, and maybe today, all of this could come to an end for us individually. We may go out to meet you. You may come for us. Whatever it is that life comes to a short and quick conclusion, I pray that we'll have no regrets as we look back over the landscape of our lives that we will not have said, I wish I had done it differently. But, Father, we would say we did it according to what you spoke to us from your word about. And, Father, we could thank God, thank you for all that you've done in our lives and through.